Welcome to ABL Duos. In this episode, Daryl and Michael Griffin Jr. examine what four generations of black business ownership look like in Atlanta. This is a part of the Telling Our Story Atlanta Business League podcast series. Here's Marty Covington. There's a quick phrase that explains the cultural roots Atlanta black business owner Daryl Griffin formed when she was growing up. I'm Wheat Street born and Wheat Street bred, and when I die, I'll be Wheat Street dead. (laughs) That's more than a cute little ditty. She just shared her connection to 200 years of African-American history in Atlanta. Wheat Street is the first name of the historic Atlanta road, now known as Auburn Avenue. The rhyme actually refers to Wheat Street Baptist Church, where Daryl, her parents, and her son have celebrated all of their major life events. It was founded in 1869, making it one of the oldest continuously operating black churches in the city. Daryl's Atlanta roots are also thoroughly tied to other forgotten portions of the city's black history. I was born at McClendon Hospital, and McClendon Hospital at the time was one of two hospitals for African-Americans founded by Dr. F. Earl McClendon, who later became my neighbor. Daryl Griffin, successful Atlanta business owner raised on the black side of town. But she grew up with the name of Narvi Daryl Harris, and that brought with it some responsibility. So I was always Narvi Harris's daughter. Um, I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I do now. The community called my mother the black superintendent. So my mother went to DeKalb County in 1944. Schools were in churches, one room. Through the ceiling, you could see the sky, and through the floor, you could see dirt. That's how those students learned. My mother's office, because she could not be a part of the central office, was on the top floor of Cox Funeral Home. So she walked right by the embalming station and the bodies and all that were in there on the second floor because she was not allowed in the central office. She became a part of the central office in 1965, and she retired in 1983. The school named in her honor was named in 1999. My mother did not pass away until 2009. Narvi taught her daughter that, for Black people, success meant having access to education, opportunities, and knowing people who could provide either or both. Narvi also wanted Daryl to know how to navigate the cultures of two separate worlds, one Black and one White. That's why Narvi sent her only child 700 miles away to start college at a private, all-white girls' school in Missouri. I think it was such a different world for me. I was in a very small town, max 20,000 people, including all students. And I came from a metropolis of a million people. I was in a majority white town and I came from a majority black town. Um, In our school bookstore, there was no lotion. My parents had to send it to me. We know our skin, and we know what we need, and it's cold there. We're ashy. Hair care items needed for a basic black girl grooming weren't available either. So we called. We asked the maid in the dorm to give us the phone number of hairdressers because we knew that every six to eight weeks we needed to get our perm touched up. 
in Atlanta, Georgia. My mother paid for me, and it was $25. So we knew the cost, but we we needed to call to find out, do you do perms, and when can we come? And we called several, and they were very hesitant. And one lady said, yeah, I can do it. And so we said, well, what's it going to cost? And she said, oh, five, eight dollars. We knew then we were not going to her. So our mothers would send us ultra sheen perm kits and we did our own hair. By the time Daryl needed to get her first perm, she was on the phone begging to abandon her great state of misery and come back to Atlanta. My mother said, your tuition is paid for the semester. We will be there at the end of October for Parents Weekend, but you will be there through the end of the semester, which we knew ended in January. So she was very clear. I'm sorry you're upset, whatever has brought this on, but you will be there. By the time my parents arrived at the end of October for Parents Weekend, I had met this guy. Mike Griffin. So, <laughs> all was well. It was actually better than that. Daryl married the boy she met and became Mrs. Michael Griffin. He was an education major studying at the University of Missouri, conveniently located next door to Stevens College. She switched her major from retail to education and graduated in 1972. After starter jobs in teaching and insurance, both jumped to successful careers in corporate America. I was the manager of personnel operations for Xerox Corporation for the Southeast region. Today we call it human resources or talent management. The position paid well, and she started getting promoted. But her job also required an increasing amount of travel, which she had less of a desire to do because Michael Griffin Jr. had been born and she wanted to spend more time with him. Daryl began looking for an industry that would allow her to be an entrepreneur. She found exactly what she wanted while sitting in her office at Xerox, listening to a woman pitch her about buying gifts for the 13 people who reported directly to her. And I thought the business was fascinating that you don't have one item. You don't just sell water for crystal, but you can sell umbrellas and you can sell apparel. You can sell food at the holiday time. You can sell all of these things. I would like to say my mentor, a white female um, who owned Nevin's Marketing, offered to take me to Dallas to this trade show, and I could see all of these things. I thought, I can do this. I had not one account, not one. <laughs> she knew where to find customers, though. My very first clients were two of my former managers at Xerox. They allowed me to provide merchandise for President's Club winners, one of the highest designations in Xerox Corporation. And I was truly green. We got it there. We got it on time. We did it. And in reality, they didn't even know that they were my very first clients. Owning a company gave Daryl a chance to grow a business and raise her son. This is ABL Duos where two black business professionals from Atlanta, Georgia, share opinions and experiences about one topic. You've met Daryl Griffin. Now, hear from Michael Griffin Jr. 
their businesses are like a sibling for me in a sense because they've raised these businesses. My mom in '90, my dad in '86 for 30 plus years. So it's 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 like a kid almost like to them. You know what I mean? And they couldn't imagine parting ways. Now obviously there's gonna come a day in time when they're like, okay, I'm done. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Daryl's son is now a man with a wife and two children. And in 2022, Michael Griffin Jr. works with his mother in the company she founded. My title is Director of Marketing, and I'd also add to that all things accolades. We don't have a formal succession plan in place at this time, but Michael has indicated on more than one occasion that he would like to take over Accolades, Inc. one day. He's been with me since 2008. And let me tell you kind of how I got there. He had a wonderful position that was bought out by another company, and he and about 1,800 other people were looking for work. I will tell you, as a sidebar, during the time he was looking for work, I mentioned at the end of an Atlanta Business League board meeting when we were talking, hey, if anybody knows uh, anybody hiring, um, Michael is looking for a position. And an Atlanta Business League person hired my son on a temporary basis until he could find permanent employment and introduced him to several people. Uh, That happened to be Tommy Dorch and his wife, Carol. I will forever be grateful. And then what ended up happening was I really, really, really ended up enjoying what I was doing. And so we were having dinner at my parents' house, and they said, well, you know, would you ever consider just staying here and doing what you're doing? I said, it's funny you say that. I was like, I'm really, I'm considering I believe Michael has what it takes to keep the business going and take it higher. He's younger. He has technology skills that I don't. He has a master's in marketing. So I believe he has the work experience, the education, and the tools to be successful. More of my day-to-day is in my mother's business. I enjoy taking a brand from where they are and elevating them or showing them ways that are simple and easy that they could be elevating themselves greater than what they are or giving them a different lens on it. However, nothing was just handed to Michael Jr. Earning your keep is a given in the Griffin family. Daryl has operated her company for more than 30 years, and in that time, she has pushed herself to reach the highest levels of professional development available in her industry. I have achieved the Master Advertising Specialist designation, which only goes to 2% of the practitioners within our organization. There is a test, much like your CPA test or your uh, JD test, and once you pass it, you are awarded either the CAS, Certified Advertising Specialist, or the MAS, and I'm very proud of the MAS, which lets my potential clients and my clients know that I am educated within the promotional products industry and that I bring a level of expertise to the programs and projects that we're working on that may help me to be distinguished against my competitors. The payoff for that hard work has been A-list clients. Verizon Wireless, Home Depot, we were with Coca-Cola for 20 plus years, UPS, United Healthcare. The ABL. There's something else Daryl and Michael Griffin Jr. have that few black entrepreneurs can claim, and that is a four-generation legacy of business ownership. My grandfather was 
James Edward Jordan, known as J.E. Jordan. My grandfather was a self-taught tailor, a self-taught photographer, and a self-taught business person who opened and owned several businesses on historic Auburn Avenue. He boasted quite a bit, I've never worked for another man. Quite an accomplishment for a black man born in 1888 who admitted on his deathbed that he only had a third grade education. Still, he ran his companies as if he had a PhD in entrepreneurship. One of the things that set him apart was he had excellent credit. And there was a company out of New York that wanted to sell their suits here in the Atlanta area. And it was my grandfather and one other business owner who was not black. And they provided that my grandfather sold them through his store because he had good credit. It wasn't based on race. He had three businesses. He owned Jordan's Shop of Quality at 268 Auburn Avenue. And that was the first Negro-owned department store, sometimes it's been called a haberdashery. Mid-career, my grandfather um, started a company called High Butte Cosmetics. He hired a chemist out of Birmingham and came up with the first smokeless oil to press black hair. And he came up with a lipstick um, in his High Butte products. And that business was on Edgewood Avenue. When my grandfather needed insurance for his business, he purchased his life insurance through Atlanta Life or North Carolina Mutual, Black-owned. But his business insurance at the time could not get through there. He had to purchase that through Oberdorfer, a Jewish firm here in the Atlanta area, whom I came to know the daughter-in-law of the founder of Oberdorfer, as she is a Stevens graduate. In other words, a lot of connections exist in ways you may not understand until you start to explore all aspects of the past. Even the unpleasant parts can help the people of the present find commonality. My grandfather was a very proud member of the Atlanta Business League for about almost 30 years. My grandfather boasted that there were two things he never missed. He never missed a hungry club forum every week on Wednesday at the YMCA on Butler Street. For everyone in Idaho, here's more business history from Atlanta, Georgia. The Hungry Club started in 1945 as a series of secret meetings black and white leaders held to discuss public policies. Most white people didn't know about these clandestine gatherings until 1950, when Atlanta's first black-owned radio station, WERD, started broadcasting from them live every Wednesday at noon. Daryl's grandfather was always in the audience. He went there, and he never missed an Atlanta Business League meeting. He was very proud of those relationships because that's how business was built in those days. The Atlanta Business League celebrates its official 90th anniversary in 2023. But before the ABL, there was the ACBL, the Atlanta Colored Business League. And Daryl's grandfather probably paid dues to that version of the organization, 
which might have been founded in 1902 or 1903. Though my grandfather was not a marcher, visible worker, he, like many people in our black community, provided funds to bail those people out of jail or to continue the organizations in Atlanta or around the country that were fighting. There's a third business owner in this story, and that is Daryl's husband. Michael Griffin Sr. received his first job offer while flying on a private plane as a University of Missouri basketball player. A few years later, he took a job with Mobile Oil and Plastics. He learned the business well enough to start his own plastics manufacturing company in Georgia. This is no lie. I'm glad I didn't know as a kid. The collateral for his business was our home. So if his business doesn't take off and do right, there's nothing. So the day he paid, the day he got that squared up, my parents cried because we got our home back. Those are the things that white America will never understand. And no matter what you tell me about bringing pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which we can, you talk about people that sometimes don't have any boots to pull up, it's never going to be equal. But if I dwell on that, that's going to prevent me from doing what I can do. I'll fast forward, but let him jump in. Michael grew up, by that time when he was aware of our careers, grew up in a home with two crazy entrepreneurs, (laughs) wondering how we're going to make payroll, pay bills, or whatever. And he heard every one of those conversations at the kitchen table. Uh, He was never pushed to join either one. He was pushed to get a college degree in four years. Michael Griffin Jr. understands that he carries his great-grandfather's, grandmother's, and parents' legacy with him everywhere he goes. He doesn't take that for granted. I'm grateful for both my parents for giving me the opportunity to do something that I love to do because a lot of times people do things because they have to do them. And I'm grateful to have two bosses that crafted out a space for me that we didn't plan on um, because I was supposed to take over when they wanted to retire. Both of my parents, and they probably will never tell you this, they made their businesses their hobbies as well. And when you do that, retirement scares you because my parents could have retired 10, 15 years ago. They love what they do. And they would be bored out of their minds if they didn't have something to do with their business It's a part of their personality almost. The exceptional cohesiveness in the Griffin businesses starts with an understanding about culture, family, and how both fit into the larger scheme of their lives. I come from a family that is very confident in who they are. And so from from when I can remember, and, and, and in my family, everyone always spoke in unison. So I was always getting the same message, whether it was from my parents my grandparents, uh, my dear beloved cousin Virgil, um, who was more like my big brother, uh, but they all spoke in unison and they all let me understand what was expected of me no matter what I did uh, because my path was different than all of theirs. My path was different from an environmental standpoint. Um, Growing up in a predominantly white environment is different, but as much as I was a part of that, um, I'll say this especially in my free time and weekends, a lot of my white friends couldn't understand why I didn't spend more time with them. And that was my time to be with people that looked like me. So my church friends, my Jack and Jill friends, guys I played basketball with, we just had more in common. I, I, I could be more of myself. And I understood um, when I stepped in through the doors every day, the expectation for me was different. 
And so my friends could be themselves, but I understood it differently. And my parents always let me understand it doesn't it's not good or bad. It's just what it is. And this will ultimately make you better later on because you can live within multiple worlds. I've always known what it is to be black in America um, and in my community. I didn't look at it as a pressure. We can't do anything about that. And you you can't walk around as if that is going to be the thing to make you or break you. You have to make your own success. And so I wasn't allowed to use race as an excuse, although it may have been the cause. But my parents were on the, they were of the mindset that you let us handle that. Your job is to go and do what we're asking you to go do. That that That's not your, you let us fight that battle for you. Mm-hmm. Something Daryl and Michael Sr. were quite capable of doing. They dedicated their lives to making sure that Michael Griffin Jr. grew up with the access his grandmother Narvi wanted for her family. That access allowed him to start chasing a specific goal as a child. It just wasn't one his parents had expected. You are listening to ABL Duos, an Atlanta Business League podcast series. Michael Griffin Sr.'s son wanted to follow his father's footsteps, starting with attending his father's alma mater. He graduated from the University of Missouri uh, in 1972 as co-captain of the basketball team, having been a walk-on. He went there on a baseball scholarship and injured his back and Wanted to play basketball more than anything. Since I could dribble a basketball, um, I was a Missouri Tiger fan. And obviously my, with my father playing there, us going up there to homecomings and games, you know, it just, it was something where that was my number one life goal. Like the first goal that I probably really, really had before business, anything else, I wanted to play basketball for the University of Missouri. And I was not changing that. And I look back now, because um, I played on two phenomenal, my sophomore year, we, were, we went to like the Elite Eight. Michael Griffin Jr. is now a father himself. But I look back now, and I wouldn't consult my boys the same way. And my parents never told me like I had to go to school. This was what I wanted to do, because I wanted to be just like my dad in that respect. He achieved his dream, but then walked away from it to refocus his goals for the future. So I was always taught that anything you want or want to do, if you really want to do it, you can go do it. I think that when you believe you can't do something, that's where jealousy is created. So I don't really identify well with that. Michael had the unique advantage of marrying all the years of business knowledge that had been poured into him at the Griffin dinner table with the elite and grueling discipline of a 1A college athlete. It made him understand the psychology of winning from a perspective no one else had. Quinn Snyder, uh, that coached me at the University of Missouri, he said, you know, a lot of kids around here say they would do anything to play for the University of Missouri basketball team. But would you really? Would you really get up every morning at 4 o'clock, work out, go to class with ice packs on, come back, work out again, go to study hall, come back, work out again every day? Would you really, really do that? Would you weight train when your body's screaming, when you're catching cramps at night and you have a paper due? Would you really go through that? Or do you just want to run out of that tunnel and wave to your family and your friends? Most people just want to run out of the tunnel. So I would caution anybody that looks at this and says this is what you want to do. Be there for the whole ride. 
Michael's ride in sports allowed him to experience the types of perks available to an athlete groomed to be a highly efficient biological machine that could compete on college basketball courts. But Michael Griffin Jr.'s parents always let him know that while sports accomplishments were nice, they sent him to college for one reason, to educate his mind. I didn't know you could not go to college. I thought you had to go. Like, I didn't know, you know, like, like, you know, like, like, I didn't know I wasn't around anybody that, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know you could elect not to go. After achieving the first major goal in his life, Michael Griffin Jr. walked away from the University of Missouri and became a Morehouse man. School in 2000, went, went to the University of Missouri, played two years of basketball there, two years, two great years there, uh, played on an Elite 18, um, played with some of the best basketball players in the country at that time. Transferred from there in 2003 and went to Morehouse College where I met my wife and all of my current friends here in like Atlanta. Uh, I did exceptionally well there. I was first team all academic SIAC. Uh, along with being a heavy contributor on the basketball team uh, and then in my fraternity Alpha Alpha as well. In many ways, you could say Michael Griffin Jr. came home, home to his culture and home to the generations of support that had shaped his mother and other members of his family. I'll never forget the day that I signed my scholarship offer. My mom cried. And I'm like, Mom, why are you crying? Like, you know what I mean? Because I'm a junior in college. I'm like, this this is business. You know what I mean? Like, so she was just, I mean, overwhelmed. And then my first year there, we won the conference and we got these big old rings. And my mom said that was her ring. And guess who has it at our, it's it's at her house. So whenever I wear it, I got to go over there. Over there, by the way, is next door. Michael and his wife had a chance to buy a home near his parents, and they took it. Now the generational lessons started at the turn of the last century with James E. Jordan, elevated through education with his daughter, Dr. Narvi Harris, and taught to her daughter, Daryl, are being transmitted to Michael's children who get to see their paternal grandparents daily. It's a cycle prime to go on, indefinitely. But this story about multi-generational Black business owners in Atlanta ends with an eye toward the future and filled with high expectations for the next generation in the family. My hopes for them are that this world is changing and that by the time they get into a position or a place in life where they have those opportunities, that the lens is different. That, that we actually are looking for the best of the best, not the best of a certain community. ABL Duos is produced by the Atlanta Business League in Atlanta, Georgia. We want to thank The Plug, owned by Carleaf and Charlene Legend, for providing recorder space. Philip Salter is the audio engineer. Post-production editing is provided by Chase Allen of Marchasco Productions. Portions of Daryl Griffin's interview came from a StoryCorps interview conducted by Kiplin Primus and used with written permission. I do the booking, logging, writing, and what have you. I am Marty Covington. Thank you for listening. This broadcast is part of the Atlanta Business League's official 90th anniversary celebration. <laughs>